The saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But what if you're in askew, and what the askew citizens do is not only nightmarish, but beyond their control? I sit down to talk with John Ware and Muna Hussein about I am in askew and the power of grim horror during a pandemic in a world that feels like it's all a liminal space, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. John Ware and Mona Hussein are a husband and wife team who create visceral audio together, and I Am In Askew was their first audio project. We talk about isolation and how cities reinforce its existence, about the reality of urban architectural horror for the vulnerable, houseless, and marginalized, and about cities as living, breathing things. In later episodes of Askew, Mona voices a second character, Ryo hired by David's mother to find him and bring him home. We stay away from any major spoilers, but talking about Rio and some other future characters is crucial to comprehending some of the themes developed across the story. Content warning for this interview, we will discuss lack of hope and the effects of the pandemic. Please take care of yourselves. All right, so John and Mana, thank you so much for coming on to Radio Drama Revival. We are very excited to have you here to talk about I Am In Askew and architectural urban horror. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Same. Um, so the first thing that we're going to start with, because if there's something true about the audience of RDR, it's that they love a good love story. So, uh, John, Mona, how did the two of you meet? <laughs> how did we a... meet? Um... <laughs> So we, we actually met at university because we're both uh, creative writing students because we decided we really wanted degrees that would really just, you know, make our, our career struggle. Uh, <laughs> so we met when we were about, um, I guess, 18 or 19. Uh, and it is, a, it is a strange story because we kind of, we briefly dated, but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't the world's greatest success, I think. Uh, I mean, I was definitely not in a position where I should have been dating anyone. Um, so, you know, it didn't go that well. Uh, and definitely kind of when it ended, I know I didn't kind of communicate particularly well the, um, I suppose, what, you know, there wasn't a great deal of good emotional communication. That's uh, okay. 21-year-old me really liked 21-year-old John. So it, it, it was okay. I had fond memories, okay. which is why yeah, when yeah. like four years later, we just randomly ended up messaging each other. Um, and we'd done our first degree and our second degree, like exactly the same at this point. And then, um, yeah. And then John sent me a message randomly one night, actually, and I happened to be awake. So I answered back and then we met for coffee and it's actually very funny. He, he disagrees with me, but I genuinely thought it was just coffee. So I turned up <laughs> looking like an absolute horror show. I think I'd like gone to the gym at lunch and I'm not sure I'd had a shower and I was wearing like genuinely just like, you know, crappy leggings and stuff. And I was working in advertising at the time and I did such a dorky thing. I met him and I hadn't seen him, you know, for four years. And the last time we kind of like properly spoke was when we were, um, obviously sort of breaking up and I met him and I, and I just went, Oh, 
do you want to see my latest advertising campaign? And like took him to see a billboard. I mean, I, I was smitten. It was adorable. I, I thought it was so cool that she'd been doing all this great work. Um, I mean, I knew it was a date because from my point of view, there was all this sort of serendipity attached to it because it's, it's almost a weird haunted story because, uh, you know, years had passed. I'd done a lot of work on myself. I was doing a lot better. And one night I, I had a nightmare and literally it was a dream in which this kind of um, crone, this kind of, you know, hag figure, very kind of mythical figure, was staring me down and just kind of reminding me of all the things I should have said at some point in my life, all the kind of just the the cruddy things I'd done when I was younger. And uh, and I woke up and the first thing I thought of was Munna. And in that kind of cathartic but ultimately selfish way, I thought I just, I won't be able to get back to sleep. I really, I ought to just say to her, I'm so sorry. I was such a kind of emotionally inarticulate uh, idiot back then. I just got to <laughs> say, I'm so sorry. That was completely my fault. And yeah. And so I, I opened up my laptop and I kind of, I messaged her on Facebook and I didn't realize that she was in New York. It was like 3 a.m. And I was expecting <laughs> just to kind of finish my little kind of uh, monologue and put the laptop down and go back to sleep. And instead I saw the kind of the two blue ticks of terror. And I was horrified <laughs> that she was awake and she'd read it. And then instantly she started replying and we ended up, you know, we chatted all night long and then we agreed to meet up back when we were in London. So from my perspective, yeah, you know, this was, there was already a, a story here. Um, yeah, but I wasn't going to get my hopes up. I wasn't going to get, and, and when we first dated, we're, we're actually just telling you the whole story now, but when we first no, dated, <laughs> John was really bad at, at like showing me anything. So like, I liked him for ages before he before he gave me any indication whatsoever. So I think this time I was like, okay, don't, you know, don't read into it. It's fine. It's just coffee. You know, nothing's going to happen. It's going to be totally fine. Um, but yeah. And then we, we met up and we went for a drink, uh, one drink in, in the South bank, which is like this really artsy area in London. Mm -hmm. And then he said, after that one drink, he said, shall we go to Gordon's wine bar, which is London's oldest wine bar it's very romantic it doesn't have any electrical oh. lighting it's underneath like the embankment bridge so it's like kind of cave-like and very like atmospheric and then i thought oh god i'm on a date <laughs> <laughs> oh. and that was it and we've oh. been together ever since and we got married <laughs> last year and yeah mm -hmm. Congratulations on getting married. I saw the photo on Twitter. It was Thank you. super cute. Thank you. It's very cute. Um, I love that this this love story is also like about like the mortifying ordeal of being known. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah, it, you know, it ties nicely back into the themes of the podcast. So you know, you've got something usable here. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll circle back to this. Um, <laughs> um, so, Mona, the idea of uh, putting this story to podcast form was yours, and it was a pragmatic choice in order to help John move forward with with creation. So now that you're, what, 30 to 40 episodes into this show, um, how has that decision helped you both so far? How has it worked out? Um, I actually think it's worked out incredibly well. I think it's worked out so much better than we than we thought it would. I think when we first started putting it out there, yeah, you're right. I was sort of the one who sort of nudged John into doing it. And the main reason why I did it is because, you know, John's always 
he, he's going to hate me saying this, but he's always been, he's always been brilliant. You know, he was one of the, the stars of our degree. He's always written really strong, um, you know, evocative fiction, but it has been the kind of fiction that is difficult to commercialize. And when we were studying, you know, the internet was only really just taking off. <laughs> That's how old we are. But it was like, you know, we joined, I, to put it in context, we joined Facebook when you could only join Facebook if you were a university, you know, if you had a university oh, degree. Yes. So this was quite a while ago. And finding an audience yourself who appreciated your art and the art that you made on your terms was unheard of because you went the, you know, the, the sort of the set where you found yourself an agent who then found you a publisher and they only published you if you were commercially viable. And the kind of work that John was doing, you know, there were really only one or two, you know, China Mieville who actually did teach us. Um, oh. and you know, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. He taught us at our course. Um, and you know, that's really it in recent history. Um, particularly in the UK, obviously, you know, there's Ligotti and all the greats, but this was, you know, the, they were revered a long time ago. And so I guess from my perspective, I wanted John to know that there were people out there who would appreciate this. And so when he just sort of started putting it out there and it started taking off, I think we were both very surprised by how it took off so organically, especially because no one knew it was us. You know, we kept it secret for so long. Uh, it was all David, you know, no one knew John and Munna. We didn't announce our names until actually after SQ finished. We certainly didn't put our photos up there. Um, and I think what it has done is two, two things. It has definitely um, given John a lot of confidence in his writing. It's given us a community, the podcast community and the audio drama community is just so wonderful. Um, I feel like we've certainly made friends that, you know, have connected with this queue. Um, we've on a personal level because it explores themes of uh, loneliness, mental health, things that um, we're both very interested in Um and because we've both experienced it in, in our own ways has made us realize that actually there is a normality about these um, issues because others experience them, many, many others across the world. Um, and I will say it's made us realize that, yeah, we can, we have an audience out there for our writing. And, I'm, and we'll come on to talk about the Silk Versus. It's definitely put the pressure on a little bit because we're like, <laughs> we are a little bit like, please like this next one, please. <laughs> okay, so since we're talking about college, though, John, I have to inform you that we did find your college blog. Um, <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, though, there's some really lovely poetry on it. And in particular, there's this one little horror story called, um, I'm not too sure about the pronunciation, but Fio, Fio. Oh, um, yeah, thank God. I was thinking I cannot remember what else was on that. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I um, think I I'm going to read. Yeah, Fio. Okay, so I'm going to read one little quote from here so that I can, like, situate uh, the audience and what I'm thinking about is, um, I realized then that the city has got the better of us. We've never even been close to the center. It's lured me here to the outskirts, far from the heart. So it seems like architectural urban horror has been around your writing for a while. Um, so what do you think 
precipitated this? How did it find its way into your writing? Um, I, I guess there's two interesting things in that quote for me, and one of which, uh, the other one of which isn't really about architecture at all. It's about um, uncertainty and hopelessness and never really feeling like you're reaching the end of something. Uh, I, I love um, absurdism. So uh, Samuel Beckett's one of my favorite writers. And, you know, I think some of the great horror uh, authors like, like Ligotti, like uh, Junji Ito, they draw on that same well of absurdism where we know that the universe is a random and horrifying place and we're probably never going to get the answers we seek. And then having fun exploring the, the absurd and sometimes beautiful things we do along the way on this kind of hopeless quest. Um, architecture, I, I've always loved urban decay. I've always loved uh, strange and silent landscapes. I've always loved the, the elements and especially just the, the, the loneliness, I suppose, of standing silently in the elements. Um, but they scare me too. Um, there's a quote I wrote about Askew for another interview, which I, I really stand by, um, which is, you know, ghost stories don't frighten me because when there's a human element, when there's a human element to a ghost story, when I know that my house is haunted by uh, a spirit who it has no head and it's the, the headless ghost and its head was cut off in 1671 and it's out to take my head and, you know, the... The, the human element is so uh, mundane and also ridiculous that I can't possibly be scared by it. But what does scare me is right now I'm sitting with kind of an open door behind me to the right and just thinking about the fact that that kind of that threshold exists and that darkness beyond in the corridor uh, terrifies me because what if I turn around and something is there? What if I turn around and I, I, I witness something that I wasn't meant to witness that I cannot define? Uh, and in that regard, I guess I think that the ghost isn't scary, but the doorway is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So since we're talking about liminal spaces here, when we're talking about also cities in the 21st century, we can't really sidestep like the discussions of gentrification, um, which does come up in some ways in later askew episodes, um, at least to my ear. Um, so what... Um, what horrors inherent to gentrification do you feel like people don't talk about or at all or enough? And then what links do you see, if any, between gentrification and liminal spaces? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, that's a, a really good question. I guess there are endless variations on an answer. Uh, I, I don't know if gentrification in the kind of the, the precise sense comes up a lot in the skew, but mm -hmm. the idea of a, a merciless city rolling over the people that live there, the rights of individuals being just completely ignored in the face of supposedly progress. Yeah, absolutely, that's that's in there. Things like uh, hostile architecture, uh, you know, the way that um, homeless people who are living within the city are forced to find their own spaces within it are rejected forcibly from any place that might offer comfort. Uh, I think that's brought up and I think that's just equally horrible. Um, and in many ways, you know, I was thinking about these issues, but also about just what it does to us, how it corrodes us to be living amongst these issues. We can we can take small actions to try and help mitigate it to some tiny extent. But if you uh, if you live in a city, if you commute into a city, you're forced to kind of walk through these areas that are changing, these neighborhoods that are being stripped of their, their identity, people that are being forced out of their homes, homeless people that are really, really struggling. And you are forced to turn a blind eye to it if you want to survive in this place. That yeah. you cannot, I, I suppose you cannot, you, know, you can't save the city. Um, 
or you would just go mad trying. And I think that's really, really horrible. Um, and something that I, I think about quite a lot is when you look at uh, the, the, the Lovecraft movement of the 20th century, the horror that uh, is based around the idea that, you know, you're going to discover a terrible god or you're going to witness a terrible sight and you're going to lose your mind and that will be the end of you. Mm. Um, I do find that a little bit naive in the 21st century, the idea that... Um, you see something horrible and then you lose your mind. Uh, to my mind, the, the real horror that we're facing right now is you see something horrible and you have to try and do your best to ignore it mm. because tomorrow you still need to wake up and you still need to go to work. Um, so, yeah, I, that's a really, really long and rambly answer and I hope you can make some sense of it. <laughs> I think so. Mona, what about you? Um, I would definitely have to agree with what John said about the horror of just existing in this city that basically chews up entire generations of people and spits them out. I think particularly in London, this is extremely evident. Um, for those who haven't been to London in a few years, there were particularly, I mean, when I was growing up, there were inner city areas which were seen as quite rough, but which were really rich mix of diversity um, you know, the kind of London Caribbean generations, also the old East End uh, generations. Um, and gentrification has created um, a, a bereavement of spaces and uh, accommodations and homes for these um, cultures and communities. They've all been moved out. And it has changed so that now when I walk through areas like Hackney or Brixton, it looks completely different to how it did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it is it's disappointing because there is a uniformity, which is actually quite scary because it means that everything has to look the same. And often it creates this disorientation where you don't fit in. Um, and it also creates an, uh, an impermanence, you know, it just, you have to keep sort of uh, trying to keep up or otherwise at some point you'll be chewed up and spat out as well. You know, at some point the city will move forward and you will be used up and you won't belong in this space anymore. So it's definitely, definitely for me. Um, yeah, I can see it in this queue. And what John mentioned about hostile architecture, um, you can see that springing up more and more, even as there are more and more homeless people. Um I've never been to San Francisco, but from what I've heard, there are lots of homeless people in San Francisco, and that would be another prime example of how gentrification has sapped people's spirits in many ways. Um, so yeah, I hope that's, I'm kind of rambling there as well, but it's certainly something that we both feel quite strongly about. So you have, um, in this answer, talked about some some things that I think everybody uh, listening to this is going to identify with. Um, we're in, you know, it's a giant pandemic sweeping over everything. And all we can really do is sit around and make pithy comments about washing our hands that uh, <laughs> people then ignore anyway, wearing yep. a mask. Yep. Um, <laughs> Uh, so let's let's talk about urban isolation in horror, because um, we're currently living that in real life in the year of our Lord 2020. Um, <laughs> so the first the first episode 
um, that people have listened to here on RDR is uh, about communication and the correspondence of these love letters, um, which David becomes a part of. And it becomes really important to him to have this communication. You know, he becomes distressed when it threatens to be over disappointed in some way when it is. Um, So what is it about cities? Um, that evokes or heightens uh, a sensation of loneliness and isolation for for either of you. Um, we've talked about this a little bit um, already, but then also, what do you think the pandemic has emphasized or changed about those facets? Yeah, the the city is a lonely space um, because it is obviously it's so busy, it's so constantly changing. Um, it is a place where everything towers over you. And especially if you are uh, an office worker in the city, as, as we've always been, you take this kind of this lonely journey from your house, which is the place of safety, into your office, which is a kind of a, a shinier, cleaner place of safety. And you just traverse this endless chaos. Um, you know, I, I think one of the loneliest things about the city is the fact that you need to uh, block stuff out. You know, people often say it's a bystander syndrome, where you, if you're in a busy urban area and you, you see something horrible happening, you're much less likely to go forward and help because there's too many other people around you. There's too much else going on. Um, you know, you're, you're literally overstimulated because there is more happening around you than we, we, we're meant to cope with as human beings. And I think that's incredibly isolating. Um, but, you know, it, it's also, it's a, it's a classic literary tradition, right? Um, from Kafka's metamorphosis to uh, Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, uh, you know, the, the modern kind of isolated individual uh, tends to be portrayed as just in the city. Yeah, I would I would definitely have to agree with that. And I think particularly we've both lived in London. Um, well, I, I've lived in London pretty much the whole time that I've lived in the UK, well, barring living in, in near university. And John's lived here for a long time, 12, 13 years. And I would say certainly London heightens that because um, every moment that you're traveling through London is is you know you do it alone and you do it through unless you're obviously with people but you do it while being very insular um i guess is what i mean because particularly in a city like london um it's true we're not very friendly we don't look at each other (laughs) um we you're you're constantly being buffeted by people or by traffic or by um uh, particularly in england the weather so it's always kind of head down not looking at people um you're underground then you're in an office there isn't really um uh an a human shared behavior here of just taking a stroll in the park it's very kind of get into the city get to your office and then get get back home which leaves you to think to realize that actually you have very little human connection and you also have very little connection with nature despite it being one of the greenest <coughs> cities in in certainly in Europe because everything is moving so fast and we work such long hours so you know you're just constantly kind of moving from chrome to glass to you know these hard unyielding surfaces um and i think that as a city of 10 million people, it can be very lonely because everyone is so busy. You rarely meet um, your friends. And most people here are um, living homes of multiple occupation with housemates. And um, most most people leave their families and come to London. So there's a real sort of uh, 
disconnect from um, anything that feels like a human connection until you're back home safe, you know, as John said. Um, so, yeah, I would certainly think that living in London has has added to that. And on the second part of your of your question, how has the pandemic exasperated that? I think the pandemic has suddenly made you um, realize how small your world is. And we we're very fortunate because we live together. So we have human connection, but we all know people who are either living on their own or who have um, housemates, but you're not meant to, um, you're not meant to touch. So the pandemic has created a world where, you know, if you're not careful, you can start to think, you know, is anything real out there? Because it's just you in your house and you start having these routines, which are very short and very small. So you go to your local shop or you order things in. Um, and if you do see other people, they're masked up and, you know, there's a fear of the the other person. So you're kind of crossing the, to the street or, you know, moving away from them. And it creates this feeling of just even more um, be, being even more insular and being in a, an ever smaller space, which comes down to just your home. And yeah, I mean, at one point I was thinking about it at one point, maybe sort of middle through April, I in my head, I kind of estimated that maybe two, maybe even three billion people were on lockdown in the world. You know, most of the North of North America, you know, the kind of Eastern States, uh, most of Europe, most of the Middle East, pretty much all of Asia, you know, it meant that there really was just like no interaction happening between between humans. And that's interesting, right? Because in the in the kind of silent spaces, in the same way that John was talking about, the doorway can be really terrifying because what's happening just outside of there, what's happening just outside of your home. Um, and this is the last thing I'll say before I let you jump in, John. Um, and over the top of it all is this invisible horror that is coming to get you, that may come to get you, that is getting people around you every day. You you hear the, the, the figures of those who have sadly passed away climb higher and higher and higher. Um, and you keep thinking, it's going to come closer to me. It's going to come closer to me. It's going to hit someone I know. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, sadly for us, it, 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 not our own immediate families, but we do know a few, a number of people who passed away, and I'm sure many people out there um, listening, you know, um, do, and it and it's terrible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of, I guess, uncharacteristically add a, a note of uh, hope, which is, uh, you know, the the really inhuman London is the. It is the heart of it, right? It's the 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 city itself where everyone comes into, um, and so much of uh, the outskirts of London, like where we live, uh, it's it's a village. It's a commuter village basically, but it, it has its own high street. It has its own uh, resources, and there is something wonderful about the fact that there's been a, a relocalization out of necessity. Uh, you know, yesterday we took our lunch and we went and ate it in a park. Six months ago, seven months ago, I would have grabbed a sandwich from the same sandwich chain that is everywhere in the city of London, and I'd have gone and sat at my desk because nowhere else is pleasant or welcoming to sit at. Mm. Um, 
So yeah, I, I guess for people that are, are fortunate, there is a uh, there is an upside. I think uh, yeah, as Mona says, there is a huge downside as well. Um, I, I work for a dementia charity, and in many ways, it's not the very worst of people are in some ways not sort of the the isolated young people, the individuals, so much as uh, older people with care homes who have dementia, who you know they're stuck in a, in a building and they've got people around them but actually the the people that know them their loved ones their family members can't come in to see them um and so they're physically surrounded by lots of people but the the only people that they need the people that can connect with them and can really support them um can't get to them and there's been a huge huge increase in the number of people with dementia who have died not with covid or of covid but just inexplicably you know their health has gone down their well-being has gone down and as a result more people tragically have passed away and that is horrifying and shocking uh, and it's a real yeah indictment on the country absolutely yeah that's it's been uh i think we can all agree those of us on this call and those listening that it has been absolute hell on earth <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so let's let's move into um, talking a little bit about uh, love instead. So this is actually a question from Rashika, who is our uh, submissions uh, editor. Uh, Rashika was the one who was like, I am in a SKU submitted. We should do it. <laughs> Yay! So Rashika's question. Um, so throughout David's narrative, there's this almost attempt at seduction of him to to stay by the city, which eventually manifests more literally via Allegra and her eventual entwining with David's life. From both David and Allegra's entry stories, we already know Askew preys on the lonely and unwanted. So I'm really curious as to how this love or a strange imitation of love emanating from the city came to be, and if it was always an integral part of the city's fabric. So is askew an abusive relationship? And what happens if askew becomes empty and alone? Uh, that's a brilliant question. Um, I don't know if it was always as integral as it became. Uh, I think, you know, we, we very much, I started writing it on the fly. I put together a couple of episodes. I sort of put them out there to see if people would, would like them. And we were really kind of, you know, surprised and uh, delighted when it seemed like it was building an audience. Um, I think at a certain point, it just there has to be a bit of a, an explanation as to why why is this 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 protagonist being preyed upon, but is not actually destroyed. So there was a kind of I guess a sense of necessity that to keep the narrative going, there needs to be the city is doing this for some kind of reason, even if it is inhuman and beyond us. Um, I think it is absolutely reminiscent of a, an abusive relationship. I think it's it's equally it's meant to be reminiscent of the. Uh, I guess the push and pull that people can feel when they're they're really isolated, when they feel like they can't quite trust human relationships around them. Uh, I think when you're going through uh, challenges that mean that you see the people around you as a threat, or you you feel paranoid that they might have you know motives of their own behind their back, you feel like they're not including you in mm -hmm. the social fabric. Um, that can make you want to hold them at arm's length. Obviously, you don't want to trust them, but at the same time, you feel that great yearning that if you only said the right things or did the right movements, they would come to accept you and you would be able to trust them and everything would be okay. Yeah. Um, 
And I, so I suppose that's an abusive relationship, less in excuse motives, but more about how how we navigate that as as victims of it, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. As to what would happen if a skew uh, was alone, I think that's that's how a skew dies. Um, I think ultimately this is this is a city that it. I always described it as it's a city that's uh, it is cancerous. It wants to, you know, it's like it's like a cell that has mutated and it doesn't know how to become mm-hmm. the object it was originally meant to be, and it's trying to fulfil the, the the functions of a city. Uh, something that I think is really kind of funny and not really remarked upon is that the horror for David is kind of from an immense point of privilege. Like he he gets middle class things. He you know he keeps getting jobs handed to him even though he's clearly done nothing to deserve them and he has no qualifications for them. And he gets provided with, you know, family members. He gets given a daughter. He gets provided with these things that should be the the staple of what, what is meant to be the kind of the lifestyle he should be seeking for according to these kind of these these rules of what a, uh, a Western urban lifestyle looks like. Yeah. Um, and he keeps rejecting them. And so to askew, you know, it, it's trying to offer him these things that we believe, we're meant to believe the person is supposed to want and it cannot understand why he keeps rejecting them because it's tried to create them as well as it can for him um, but he just keeps turning them away um, so yeah I, I think there is something a, a little bit tragic in that and I can only think that you know if it had no one else to torment like that uh, <laughs> it would have to die because the city needs people to inhabit it it needs that mm-hmm. that raw material to keep it going um, okay, great. So Rio is the uh, investigator hired by David's mother to find him um, and uh, shows up in uh, her own episodes later in the podcast. Um, so what is the importance uh, to the atmosphere and horror of I Am In Askew to have Rio and David sort of uh, somewhat opposing each other and not just them as characters, but also uh, London and askew. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave John to answer the London to askew part of the question because, um, yeah, I'm interested to see how you'll answer that one, and I think also you'll have, you know, very interesting, uh, I guess, insights. But the fact that they're opposing ones from from my perspective, I think it's sort of. For me, it ties back to that kind of um, what we were talking about earlier of David's relationship with Eskew being one almost of an abusive relationship. And then Rio comes in and she's someone who is the person who's kind of trying to drag, um, you know, the main protagonist out of the abusive relationship. And she is, you know, friends and family, um, but she's also your own kind of mind that tells you this isn't quite good for you and um, that's kind of the 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 uh i guess ecosphere she um occupies for me when i listen back to it um and i think what it creates that kind of back and forth between them is it's given us a chance to um inject some tension into askew into askew itself because I remember when we were talking about this as it was ramping up towards the end, we didn't want there to just be, you know, sort of Rio comes in and she's got her shotgun and she's a little bit badass and then she just kind of rescues David. We really needed to be that 
um, the city was not going to give David up without a fight. And that's why there was kind of the opposing, um, I guess, push and pull between the two of them. Because in some ways, David was sort of helping the city or or sinking back into the city, even as he had the chances to, to escape from it. If only he would, yeah, kind of um, be led by Rio. Have I got that right, honey? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think looking back, uh, you know, because we were winging it at first, which again, I really don't recommend. Um, <laughs> no, no, kind of... there were there were artistic choices, artistic yes, choices. Yes, artistic choices. Well, um, you know, we, we got four episodes in and it became clear that we wanted to keep going with it, that people were enjoying it. And I, I think at a certain point you realise that you can't just have this this sort of horror quantum leap where every episode uh, the guy finds himself in a different flavor of horrible circumstances and then at the end of the episode it resets and then we get another one the next episode because uh, that's it is passive and it, it needs to go somewhere and I think introducing uh, Rio was kind of it was really really important for giving the, the narrative some forward momentum giving a sense of you know how do you end up in a place like Askew what is the journey to get there um, but as well as actually introducing, you know, a, a plot, uh, it also let us do some some commentary around the show. So, uh, you know, a lot of the episodes with uh, Withery are really there's a bit of commentary on what is horror, what are haunted places, what mm. does architecturally focused horror look like, um, and it's just kind of playing with those in a bit of a, an explicit way and talking through them, mm. which we wouldn't be able to do in David's narrative. Um, I also think from memory, so obviously it was always a, it was meant to be a story that was about, uh, you know, mental health challenges and just and feeling isolated mm-hmm. and alone and unable to really trust or feel connected to anyone around you, but also feeling like you need to keep up that pretense mm-hmm. because if you don't pretend everything's okay, everything's going to get worse. Um, and that was always a core cool part of it. But if you just have David's perspective throughout the whole show, it starts to feel more and more like it's opening up some kind of Shutter Island-esque is it all in his own head yeah. uh, angle, which was very much what we didn't want to go for. It didn't. We didn't want it to be, oh, the answer is actually he he's imagining these things. Um, because that is, it, it's it's patronizing really, but it's also, mm-hmm. it's, it's a glib way of dealing with the, the things that he's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having an external perspective come in, having us just establish that, you know, it may be an allegory in some ways, but it is also an objective reality within the show, uh, I think was really important. Um, and on, on London, yeah, I, I think it gave us a chance to be explicit about the fact that the, the horrible things that happen in Askew, they're exaggerated, absurd versions of things that happen in real life. So it was a chance to kind of uh, really be unsubtle and just kind of hammer home the fact that in many ways, Askew is London, Askew is every city, Askew is every kind of inhuman urban place where um, people feel alone and lives end and uh, individuals just uh, crushed. Yeah, absolutely. Also, can I just say that like that answer was just like such a mood. <laughs> a I'm down mood, like, right? Yes, I, I, I identify with this. <laughs> 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 there were so many times that um, John would send me a first draft and I would read it and I would just be, you know, and I know listeners can't see my face now, but I'm wide eyed staring in horror. Um, that first reading was always made me think, 
what is going on in his brain? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of like, but then, you know, I often, because it's so visceral in many ways, right? The horror, it's such body horror. It's such, there's such, you know, there's grotesque, you know, the worm episode and it's all very, yeah, really visceral, I guess is the word. It, it, it mm-hmm. really does kind of create yeah, a mood, as you said. Mm. <laughs> um, so this is a question a little bit possibly out of uh, left field, but let's see how it does. Um, Mona, you work in marketing and branding, and you are a self-confessed nerd for data and insight into people. So let's talk about the horror of being known or unknown in askew. Um, how would you say Askew uh, targets or abandons its citizens? And why are both of these such a problem for David um, and Rio, I guess, in, in some later episodes? Ooh, okay. That is a, that is a really good question. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so... I'm going to use the example of the the episode um, of the office where there's like this thing on the desk and they just like, you know, it's kind of growing and they're kind of like feeding people to it and stuff. And I absolutely loved that um, episode because that is such an example of the way Eskew kind of feeds on people not just actually feeds on people because they're being fed to this thing but also because of the way um the people sat around the table their personality um changes and their their soul and their humanity is is eaten up by just accepting that this thing on the table is 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 part of their lives and they're not gonna they're just gonna sort of bow to it and i think the way I guess that kind of relates back to my work is that um, data is it just it's very it's looking at humans and human connections and people in a very inhuman way. It just reduces everyone to numbers and reduces everyone to these um, kind of sweeping generalizations. You know, data kind of looks at this is who you are and you fit in this box. And once you stop fitting in that box, you get moved to this box, depending on your set of behaviors. But there is there is no um, kind of rhyme behind it. It's not because you're human. It's just because you are looked at as a program which exhibits a series of behaviors and depending on which series of behaviors, which ones and zeros you spit out, that is which box you end up being put in. Um, so I think that in that way, Eskew kind of brings that to life, if that makes sense, through um, through chapters like, like that one, through uh, chapters where, um, is it the tower where everyone's kind of building the tower um, I forget the names of chapters, um, but yeah, so kind of how everyone sort of gets pulled into building this tower and building it together. Um, everyone gets swallowed up into exhibiting a series of behaviors and they're just looked at 
for exhibiting those series of behaviors. And when SQ wants, you know, people to move from one box to another, it creates an environment where they're forced to exhibit a different set of behaviors and to react to sort of the, the outputs around them in a different way. And then XQ kind of moves them to that box. Um, yeah. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it did. That's a brilliant answer. I, I like saw your, we have a researcher obviously who like, uh, builds dossiers. Oh God. What did you say? Uh, (laughs) And I was reading, I'm like, oh, I would love to connect, uh, like data and, and data analysis and branding into like this, this horror scenario for a city, because I think those are really, um, like expertly linked, especially living in the time that we do now. Uh, where like surveillance in cities is like and like on the internet yeah. and using it to like doing ad branding is like such a moving in a very dystopian direction let's say oh, yeah Alexa oh, yeah. I'm looking at you <laughs> yeah we we actually refuse to have one in the house because good because we're convinced it will always be listening and recording us so we're just like no no thank you yeah I used to have one and then I literally threw it in the trash. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've got one final question. So you're both in the middle of creating this new podcast that you've mentioned called The Silt Versus, which is a a weird fantasy folk horror story. So let's um, tell us a little bit about it to whet everyone's appetite. I saw that you closed casting in May. So that's very exciting. It definitely is. Um, you, you're a mouth open hand. Do you want to go first? Or? No, no, go for it. Um, yeah, so I probably need to come up with a better elevator pitch rather than just kind of hesitating when someone asks me to describe it. Um, <laughs> it's a very elemental, weird show in its own way, like a skew. Uh, it takes place in um, a modern day, but kind of very slightly fantastical, uh, animistic world where uh, you know, local deities and spirits exist and they lurk in the, the marginal places, the liminal places. Um, and once you learn the language of, a, of these, these deities, once you learn how to speak to it, you can call upon it, you can sacrifice things to it to, to gain something in return. But equally, it begins to hold a power over you. And in that very Ovidian way, it may decide to change you. Its, it's plans for you may not be the same as uh, your plans for it. Um, and some deities are kind of outlawed and others are accepted and commodified uh, and we follow two disciples of this this outlawed river god and they're on the run from the law and they're trying to build their faith back up and trying to you know look for fellow worshippers and just figure out what their god might want from them while ultimately grappling with their, their stated religious end goal which is to, to wipe out the world as we know it um, I don't think it's going to be as much kind of outright horror as a skew um, when we have one of the, the voice actors doing a, a recording session recently, they, they described it as a thriller, and that almost upset me. Like, you know, do we need to include more monsters? How how can I make sure you know you know this is still horror? Um, and perhaps it isn't. Perhaps it's a bit more more weird fiction and fantasy with horror elements. Um, but I, I think, like I said earlier, you know, it, it's a framework that hopefully it allows us to get really weird and creative and take the list in places uh, while building up these these central characters and themes that you know, hopefully uh, yeah hopefully people will really care about them as much as, as much as we do yeah we're we're really excited about this because it's the first project we're doing that has um, 
obviously multiple voices, multiple actors, voice actors. We've got some um, really great voice actors um, and we have um, some more to, to pick. Actually, we had so many great voice actors that we ended up trying to find, you know, additional roles for people, um, which we're really excited about. And I mean, John is saying that he doesn't think it's as horror, I guess. No, I would say there is less body horror, but I still find it quite horror driven. I still find the overarching thematic um, sense to be horror. So I guess it will be interesting to see how it's received um, by others. And yeah, I think it's going to be it's it's <laughs> this isn't just us sort of doing it in a blanket for this time. You know, we're trying to be super professional about it. Uh, so, yeah, we're looking forward to, to the release, which we hope to be um, soon, sort of around autumn time. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I. I think at this point, probably like, uh, launching will be the intent to do it maybe uh, late October, early November. Uh, and as Mena says, you know, it's brilliant, exciting, working with lots of talented people. Uh, but speaking of the mortifying ordeal of being known, it's it's terrifying. <laughs> you know, it's completely oh, terrifying. Yeah. There's an invulnerability to just doing it by yourself. And now suddenly you've got all these amazing people and you've got to try and, you know, uh, make sure you kind of, you, you work with them and, and give them something that they're really proud of and take care of them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited for it. When I read the the description, I was just like, oh, this is exactly my alley. This is like where I live. Yes. Yeah. I'm very interested in your uh, the dealing that you're going to have with with this like horror adjacent fantasy and like religious uh, themes. Um, I think that there's a lot there <laughs> uh, that I personally am very interested in. I see a lot. I read a lot about it in in gothic horror. Right. Um, right. But it's this looks very, very cool. I'm very excited. Thank you. I Am in Askew is a completed story that runs to 30 episodes. You can listen to more of Askew and learn about their next project over at IamInAskew.com or follow them at Askew underscore podcast on Twitter. One of the support actions they ask you to take is a donation to a missing persons charity, like Missing People in the UK or Lost and Missing in the USA. We'll provide a link in the episode description. Radio Drama Revival runs on cute animal pictures and your help. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. If you put one of our stickers on a telephone pole, hopefully it will still be there the next day. The telephone pole, I mean. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hi. So, I wanted to talk about architecture today. And the loneliness of architecture, but in a way that can be, I don't know, shockingly humanizing? And a video essay that's been on my mind a lot is Jacob Geller's Cities Without People. I will, of course, link this in the show notes. This video essay is about the uh, kind of uncanny experience of Microsoft Flight Simulator, which is a hyper-realistic pilot simulator software uh, with procedurally generated... Listen, I don't 
I don't really understand it. Um, I have written professionally about games before, but I don't, I have not played this game, which is to say uh, that if you have no experience with a flight simulator ever in your life ever, you still might really enjoy this video essay. I don't want to talk about it too much. I think it goes in some really interesting directions. It's about a 25-minute video, which I know sounds a little bit long, but it's very compelling. It's very engaging. So, hey, if you want to talk about loneliness and isolation and architecture, but with a shockingly really mostly positive uh, humanistic outcome, I would highly recommend. So again, that's Jacob Geller's video essay, Cities Without People. I will link it in the show notes. And that means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Athfaladi tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are seeking ways in which to donate to Native communities, the Aniwa Gathering of Elders and the Boa Foundation are raising community relief funds for six reservations. Oglala Lakota, Hopi, Lenape Romapo, Apache, Dine Navajo, and Toono Oodham communities. You can donate at www.gofundme.com slash f slash support dash indigenous dash communities dash in dash USA. The link will be in our episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kass. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouch and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. <laughs>